In this episode of the Futures Work podcast, I was joined by Martin Parker, Professor of Organisation Studies at the University of Bristol, and he's the author of a new book called Shut Down the Business School, based on decades of experience working within business schools around the UK. We discussed Martin's main argument that we should bulldoze the business school and instead create a school for organising, one that would, as he calls, be a laboratory for the future. Okay, thank you, Martin. Thanks very much for joining us today in the studio. Um, just want to start off with, at the moment, we're sat inside the University of Bristol School of Management. And for those who haven't had the pleasure or at least the experience of walking into a business school or a management school, can you kind of sort of describe what it's like for, for the listeners? Sure. I mean, Bristol isn't a particularly typical school of management, but for many schools of management, when you uh, walk into the atrium, you'll be confronted by a series of uh, exciting posters with uh, pictures of a diverse range of students um, sitting around laptops and pointing and things like that. And usually various kind of inspirational sayings like, you know, Bristol means business or uh, we have your career at heart or whatever it might be. So very often the kind of the, uh, uh, the atrium of the business school is a bit like a shop window mm-hmm. for a particular kind of educational experience. Um, the one that struck me as being most uh, stereotypical and the one that I'm kind of riffing off when I'm uh, talking about this at the start of the book is uh, Warwick's, uh, Warwick's Business School, which is, it's a bit like walking into some kind of, um, um, a, 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 you know, a sort of knowledge, a knowledge company of some description. So, you know, receptionist behind a desk and low furniture and a variety of um, leaflets advertising exciting courses and all this kind of stuff. So in, in, in some sense, you know, that, that sort of version of what the university looked like, it looks like in terms of its architecture and the kind of symbolism of that stuff, is pretty indistinguishable from lots of knowledge companies. You know, it's the kind of thing you'd see if you were going into a big law firm or a, a big architectural practice or whatever else. It's kind of generic, modern, um, and lots of promises about the kinds of experience that you can get, about how much we care about students and how much you will be advantaged if you spend your money with us and all that kind of stuff. Mm. In particular, in the book you talk about this hidden curriculum can you give us a flavor of of what you know what the kind of main modules people do what is this kind of what's hidden from these main modules Mm, of course yeah I guess if we start off with the idea of what's promised then maybe we can see what's not there Mm. too so the idea of the hidden curriculum dates from the sort of 50s and 60s so sociology of education stuff and the idea there was the um to look at what essentially wasn't being taught in schools and very often it was pressing on questions of of gender say or ethnicity or whatever Um, and many of those lessons I think have been taken to heart in contemporary education in terms of ensuring that you know we we talk about the lives of female scientists or um, uh, or, 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 or black people who've engaged in various kinds of cultural production or whatever else so the idea is then that you know people are being included the hidden curriculum in the business school is a rather different one in that I think it's basically the neglect of a whole series of different forms of economic arrangements. So what tends to be taught in business schools is the sort of the corporate form, essentially. The idea is that most of the cases and most of the courses are essentially assuming that the only relevant organisational form is the big corporation. Mm. And it's the activities of managers in the big corporation which are consequently of most interest, which 
there's a couple of things. I think one of the things it does is it sort of naturalises the corporation as if that were really the only relevant organisation in town. And that uh, when we're talking about efficient economic activity, the corporation then becomes unquestionably the obvious way to do things. Mm. And if you're not a corporation, you should want to become one because size is good and you know bigness is generally regarded to be important and you should become global and all that kind of stuff. So it assumes a kind of um, a narrative of growth. Now, my argument in the book is essentially that the corporation is only one organisational form amongst many. So my background is in sociology and anthropology and a very cursory look at those disciplines shows us that human beings have organised in lots of different ways, in lots of different places, at lots of different times. Mm. So organising as a general verb is something that is variable. Um, it's, it's plural, it's diverse. But yet, if you go to a business school, effectively you're kind of taught that there's only one relevant form of organising, the corporation. Mm. So the hidden curriculum is essentially all the other stuff. So even if we took a fairly commonsensical example, really, the cooperative form, uh, so an organisation which is ideally owned and controlled by its members, despite the fact that um, the cooperative sector is a fairly large and vibrant sector globally, it's very rarely mentioned as a routine part of the business curriculum. You'd think that it didn't really exist. There are a few business schools that do some stuff on this, but most of them just ignore it. And consequently, when you talk to students about cooperatives, they don't really know about them. And if they do know about them, they're more likely to regard them as sort of, well, rather nostalgic um, uh, organisations from another age, yeah, that effectively have been swept away by the efficiencies of the large global corporation. So... My understanding of the hidden curriculum in terms of the business school is essentially anything that isn't corporate capitalism. And that means that lots of the students who go through business schools of business and management, and there are an enormous number of these, you know, roughly one in seven students in the UK currently are going through some variant of a business degree, are effectively being taught that there is no alternative, you know, that this is the only way in which economic life can be understood and the only the, the the sort of the sets of problems that the corporation corporation faces are consequently the only problems they think are relevant and i think politically that's a really damaging state of affairs hmm. so this focus mainly on sort of just corporate capitalism and ignoring all other forms of organization and, and organizing is 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 that sort of always been the case within business schools or is this something that's you know within the last sort of 30 40 years and basically have they always been bad that's uh, nicely put. I think there's a, there are a series of different histories of business schools. Remember that in the UK, business schools are a relatively recent invention. Um, effectively, we get our first business schools in the 1960s, and they don't really expand. They don't, you know, we don't get business schools in most universities until about the 1990s. So they're, they're, they're recent things. Yeah? So it's difficult to talk about that history in the UK. Mm. Effectively, they start, from my point of view, they pretty much start <laughs> off being bad right. in the UK. There's a different history in the States, though, because business schools date back at least a century, uh, depending on what you regard to be the first business schools. Um, but one of the common narratives in the States is this idea that the earliest business schools, places like Wharton or Harvard or whatever, began with a certain kind of moral mission, that they were, in a sense, engaged in trying to teach uh, American business people some uh, of the 
important sort of civic virtues in a sense. And so business schools are then kind of articulated as, in a way, kind of controlling the excesses of capitalism. Particularly if you think about this at the sort of the turn of the 19th and early 20th century, when you know most histories of the United States are going to be talking about huge corporate dominion, the uh, the dominance of the rubber barons, of huge levels of corruption, and the capacity to influence the state, and so on. So, in a sense, the expansion of business schools at that time can be understood as a certain sort of reaction to that image of mm-hmm. American business, and the importance then of providing a kind of moral, ethical regulation for those business people. In a sense, turning it into a kind of profession to say that, you know, that there are certain values um, that every business person should be able to articulate and their practices consequently should follow from those kinds of values. What appears to happen in the States is that, and I'm simplifying a complicated history here, is that by the 1970s, there's a sense in which the business school kind of gets taken over by finance capital. Um, And there's a very common story here about the way in which essentially disciplines like finance and accounting, finance in particular, um, and a certain kind of neoliberal economics then comes to dominate business school curricula. Now, you can kind of tell that about, you know, you can tell that story in terms of the rise of Wall Street, Mm. but also financialized capital more broadly. So that then you get a series of histories of the US business school, which are actually quite nostalgic. So, you know, from the from the viewpoint of, say, the 1990s or the early 2000s, looking back on this earlier form of business school and saying that was much better than one we have now, because effectively the business school that we have now is one that is simply inculcating greed and is primarily concerned with shareholder value to the um, uh, to, to essentially, essentially concerned with shareholder value because nothing else really seems to matter. Yeah, don't care about the environment, don't care about employees, don't care about labour standards. We just care about shareholder value. Hmm. So you're saying about in terms of the, in, in America where you've got these you know these robber barons in terms of the time when they're trying to promote these kind of civic values within the business school. Do you feel like maybe now is also the time where society looks at big businesses and bankers and things like this after the financial crisis as maybe another opportunity to change these things around or you think that it's gone too far now and that's why we just have to bulldoze <laughs> it would be nice to think that we have that opportunity now 10 years after the financial crisis one that is very often accounted for in terms of business education um, and the kind of short-term uh, decision-making based essentially on, 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 on the greed of a relatively few people. It would be nice to think that that provides us with the opportunity to radicalise the business core curriculum. However, as you suggested in your question, I think matters have gone rather too far. Mm-hmm. And, and, and in a sense that small changes to the schools of business aren't going to be enough. You know, that's why I metaphorically suggest that we need to call the bulldozers in because I I don't think that small amounts of reform are going to be sufficient in order to deal with the very large-scale assumptions that we need to address. Just to take one, for example, growth, yeah? Pro-growth assumptions are built into virtually every business school discipline. The assumption is that the bigger the organisation is, the better it is. The idea somehow that business that businesses could operate in steady state is is simply not assumed to be a possibility. It's not it's not built into strategy. It's not built into HR. It's not built into international business, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. 
but yet an increasing number of people, of course, you know, uh, faced with the problems of carbon, are essentially saying, well, we need to really be rethinking our attitudes towards a growth economy. You know, the idea somehow that growing the economy is necessarily good. Further to that, we need to be rethinking the ways in which we're moving goods around the world, because mm. you know, ideas about international trade are in part responsible for the growth of international sorry growth growth of carbon emissions you know uh, shipping uh, currently uh, takes something it's about i think it's about 7 or 8% of carbon emissions are down down to shipping so big shipping containers moving stuff we don't really need around the world so it's fairly clear to me that the kind of economy that we're going to need in the future is an economy that's going to be skeptical about growth to put it mildly but also that assumes that international trade isn't necessarily an unparalleled good, which again presses against ideas of growth. So the, 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 the depth of the rethinking that's required in order to teach that kind of business, I think effectively means that, yeah, we have to, we have to clear a lot of the rubbish out first. <laughs> so I'm sure there'll be people uh, listening to this in business schools or management departments or whatever it is um, and think, well, that, that's not the case here. You know, we do things differently here. We have these public values or this particular way of looking at the economy that's very different from normal business schools, as you might see on people's prospectuses and stuff like this. You know, do you think that do you think that you're kind of generalizing here and, you know, all business schools are, you know, are they, you know, are they all really bad? Um, and, you know, so we might as well we've got to bulldoze all of them. Or have you seen any shining examples or, or anything from this? Or you've got to say, no, you know what? As you say, you've got to just get rid of them all and start mm. fresh. Is it? They're all bad. Yes, that's right. <laughs> Is there any nuance in my argument at all? Well, of course, I need to be careful here because many of the people I'm insulting are my friends. Mm. You know, I've, I've worked in UK business schools for two decades now, and uh, you know, I know there are examples of people who share my concerns and who teach and research in interesting areas. Fine, that's probably five percent of what goes on in business schools. The, my argument is essentially that majority of business school education across the globe is not like that. So, you know, if we think there are, there are it's difficult to get exact numbers, but something like 13,000 business schools across the world, something like that, yeah? I think that faced with the scale of that kind of business education uh, and the globalisation of that business education as well, of course, then it's not enough for somebody who happens to work at the University of Bristol or the University of Cardiff to say, but I do different things. Mm. You know, I teach a bit about sustainability. I care about gender. You know, I'm interested in trade unions or whatever, because that's not what most business school education is like across the globe. And indeed, if you look at some of the really powerful business schools, say the North American ones being the obvious examples, their neglect of these issues is quite astonishing. Um, they might, you know, decorate some of their courses with an, uh, an option in sustainability or, um, you know, something about workers or whatever else. But the dominant assumptions are ones in which effectively they're preaching to a choir of managers who are assuming that it, we can, you know, we can, we can just continue business as usual. Mm. And I don't think that even scratches the severity of the crisis, a species extinction crisis <laughs> that faces us, let alone questions of social justice and inclusion and so on, which are, to me, um, they, 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 are, they are issues which far exceed the imagination of most business school academics. Mm. Okay, so let's. Okay, so now we kind of got an idea of, of the problem, or at least the tr the kind of the future that the business school is promoting or solidifying or whatever. Here, um, a lot of your book is all about almost like a call to arms in a way of that we need to do things differently, and it's not just identifying and identifying the problems here. So, 
you know, you're talking over here about the School of Organising, okay, which you describe as a laboratory in which the future is being built. Okay, so tell me a bit about this. Tell me a bit about this laboratory and also what, what is the future or futures which people are trying to organise into existence here? Mm, it sounds great, doesn't it? And yeah. I'd love to work in it. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. And in part, you know, both the kind of the, 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 the weakness and the strength of the book, I suppose, is that it's the point at which it moves towards these kind of gestures towards a different kind of future. So I think I can establish fairly convincingly, I hope, in the first half of the book, that we have a problem. Mm. Yeah, business, business education is politics by other means, and it's a politics that is essentially uh, furthering neoliberal and pro-growth agendas. Right, so the question is then, what do we do about it? Now, the the, the 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 kind of the rather utopian solution I put forward is this idea of a kind of a new university department, in a sense, and it's a department that is concerned with organising in its many different forms. Now, here, rhetorically, what I'm doing is opposing the kind of singularity of the corporate form to a huge variety of ways of organising which actually exist and which have existed and hopefully will continue to exist, and suggesting that the curriculum of this school for organising would be a kind of, if you like, a sort of experimental lab for producing different kind of accounts of the future. So let's let's just take one example, for example. Uh, one example. So, so complementary currencies, all right? So complementary currencies, a whole variety of different ways of thinking about economic exchange. Um, there are lots of these. There's one in Bristol called the Bristol Pound. Many of them are predicated on the idea of stimulating local economies. Stimulating local economies is a really interesting and important thing to do, in part because it encourages senses of local responsibility, and there's a great deal of evidence that matters in terms of economic exchange, but also because it encourages a low-carbon and low-growth economy. There's a very interesting set of experiments happening currently in Preston, in the north of England, um, in which a variety of mechanisms are being adopted. One of them, one of the proposed ones, is a complementary currency in order to ensure that capital is essentially recirculating within Preston, the city and city region. Now, these kinds of experiments at producing a future are... Um, I think they're, 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 they're politically possible. Uh, we, know, we understand enough about the kind of the economics and the technologies which would make some of these things possible. They're not taught within business schools because they don't fall into the dominant economic model, essentially because complementary currencies trade on the idea of incommensurability rather than commensurability. In other words, stopping capital from moving rather than encouraging fluid capital flows and, you know, at, at any... Uh, with with with, with all sorts of mechanisms. I mean, essentially, that's what, that's what contemporary financialized capitalism is doing, is turning everything into potentially commensurable. So the idea of a, uh, a complementary currency is reversing that kind of trend. And it seems to me it's something that we should be seriously thinking about. That's not to say it's the only solution. It's certainly not to say that that's necessarily going to be the best solution for everybody. But it's a form of an experimental attitude towards social organisation that I think we should be encouraging. Now, if we add to that ideas about, let's say, mutuals or local banks or yeah, various forms of, 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 of cooperative ownership or organisation or employee trusts or whatever, then we have the potential for a wide variety of organisational arrangements, each of which might be appropriate for different kinds of circumstances and different kinds of economies and you know different kinds of cultural assumptions within places too. And one of the metaphors I quite like here is this sort of notion that if we 
if we, if we think about, say, biodiversity, we go somewhere else and we expect to see different kinds of animals and plants and so on that have you know, adapted to whatever the environment that they're in. And, and that's something that we value, that kind of thing. Indeed, scientists tell us we should value precisely that kind of, uh, the, the variety of, of forms of life that exist on our planet. I don't see any particularly good reason to assume that we couldn't think the same kinds of things about organising. Yeah. And indeed, you know, anthropological and historical evidence would suggest exactly that. So let's encourage diversity. Let's encourage variety rather than assuming that there is one best, one best form of organising and one way of understanding human beings and their relationship to markets. Mm. Okay, so now you've got, let's say, you know, the school of organising was established, right? Mm. And you talk in the book about the marketization of higher education in general. So how would this school of organizing work within the remits here of a university which you say is being marketized and mm. um and with the rise of tuition fees and things like this you know how would it kind of how would it work here in practice yeah in our context of you know the uk this is a really difficult question and it's not a question to have an easy answer to in part because of course universities have effectively been privatized by the back door a relatively small proportion of the income of an university like Bristol now comes through the state. Some, some of it's securitized by the state in terms of the student loan company and so on. But you know, it, we we are we effectively where we are only part creatures of the state now. We're trading in markets. That means that universities are increasingly reliant on um, on selling their products and. One of the big products that all universities in the UK and a variety of other parts of the globe too sell is English language management education. So it's very difficult to see how you would be able to influence, uh, let's say, the Vice-Chancellor of Bristol University, for example, Mm. um, not to want his school of management to be earning quite a lot of cash because it pays to keep the chemistry department open, to make sure that they can replace the windows in the student residences, etc., etc. Effectively, the business school in most UK universities is now the cash cow that pays for lots of other things too. Now, in those kinds of circumstances, you know, follow the money. It's, it's going to be very difficult unless you replace those forms of income with something else to change the way in which uh, the political economy of the university operates. However, I'm a bit more optimistic than that in terms of an appeal to students because I think that one of the things that universities have, have also done in their, um, in their attempt to chase the student buck is to be treating students as if they were no more than customers and effectively almost refusing to treat them as political subjects. Now, I don't think students are that stupid. Yeah? I think that students understand the challenges of the environment. I think you know, they walk past homeless people on the way to the lecture theatres. They understand that you know, the last polar bear is going to fall off his iceberg and, and they will all cry about it and all the rest of it. You know, they, they are, they are they're young people who've been confronted by all these kinds of problems. What I don't think they understand is what they might be able to do about it. Now, for my money, the School for Organising should be making a direct appeal to the future in that sense. So, you know, given, given the problems that we collectively face as a species, the most important issue that we, you, the students, should be rethinking is economic life on this planet. Yeah, that's what we've got to do something about. 
So don't treat them like mugs. Don't treat them like mugs who, you know, effectively they pay their cash and you promise them a Porsche on the drive by the time they're 25. Treat them like grown-ups. Tell them, not that they're going to get shiny jobs running in glass buildings, but, you know, if they really want to change the future, if they want to address the problems that all human beings are going to be confronted with, then we need to be rethinking the ways in which we imagine business management organization and markets yeah so so in that sense it's it's a very urgent political appeal but it's a it's a political appeal that's intended to be aimed at smart young people smart young people who want to do something about the world hmm. we were talking about this before uh, before we started this uh, podcast and i was reading your your, your book at the weekend um, and my, my partner's uh, sister has recently done an MBA and she said, you know, should I be reading that book? Because I've literally just finished and spent thousands and thousands of pounds on this American MBA. Like, should I actually, should I, maybe I should take a look at this book. It sounds very interesting. Um, and I told her that it's probably not necessarily the best bet. Then do you think you're going to be attracting the same people that are going to be wanting to do these the management business degrees? I hope so. I mean, that has to be my bet on the future, doesn't mm. it? I mean, you know, the, the topic of this series of podcasts is the future. Mm. And in order to be thinking about the future, surely we must be investing a degree of hope. Mm. You know, that's, that's the kind of, you know, that's where we're all going to be living, <laughs> right? So, so if, we, if we are stuck in an entirely marketized university system, then I guess we just have to say we don't look to universities for social change then. You know, if they're just about providing qualifications, which effectively reproduce the status quo, then let's look to social movements or established forms of politics or whatever else. I'd like to think that universities weren't quite that... um, uh, quite that dull, that much invested in simply reproducing the status quo. Mm -hmm. Since the 1960s, we've we've had... um, a, a, a common notion that universities are about questioning um, and indeed you know, it's central to the idea of the scientific method right you don't take things for granted mm-hmm. so if, if universities are kind of um, if they are institutions which are loosely attached to the societies of which they're a part of and capable of asking those critical questions then yeah they're invested in the future too in some kind of hope for a possible future um, th- and you know th- I suppose the, the obvious the obvious answer is really what's the counterfactual you know and the counterfactual is the university the, the business school let's say is so ineluctably corrupt and finished then we you know we should all just just leave i suppose or <laughs> just carry on collecting our salaries and an entirely an entirely cynical act of bad faith um which is fine i suppose so you know lots of people take jobs and are hypocrites but i'd, I'd like to think that the places that you and i work might be places that could be yeah, as I said before, kind of labs for the future. Mm, yeah, no, yeah, no, and I, I mean, I, I definitely agree. And one of the one of the things that I think was so interesting about your book, uh, uh, and a question which you want to get onto next, is about well, one of the ideas about school of uh, of organising was not necessarily just even having this department within the university, but kind of almost this uh, a new way of learning and teaching and things like this. And then that made me think, well, okay, well then maybe we should apply this to the whole university. Why don't we just get rid of the whole thing and start fresh? Especially when you've got something, um, you know, should we just get rid of the business school? Are other departments and schools and whatever corrupted by these type of values? And maybe a school of organising should be something that's so systematic to a lot of the university. We get rid of it and start fresh. Yeah, I think that's a really perceptive question. I mean, one of the, one of the things that a couple of people have said to me about this book is that it's a book of its time in the sense that 
you know, it, it's sort of pulling together my complaints about the changes in the university more generally than I've seen taking place around me over the last quarter of a century or so. Uh, you know, move from state support towards a largely marketized system. And the business school in that sense is really just the, well, sometimes described as the shock troops of marketization. It's the place where those tendencies are clearest, where there is an assumption about satisfying customers who give you cash and so on. So you can easily argue that the that these kinds of phenomena are not unique to the business school. They might be most uh, evident within the business school, but they permeate the entire university. Mm. Um, and one of the you know one of the criticisms I would make of the book, in a sense, is that perhaps I put too much faith in the idea of the university as being a particular kind of institution that could inculcate, which could produce different kinds of knowledge. Now that. That you know that may well be true. I, I since arriving at Bristol uh, six months or so ago, I've been spending as much time as I can talking to people from various alternative businesses and social movements within the city. Um, it's things like the Bristol Pound and various cooperatives, and and there's a very interesting couple of banks here, regional banks and so on. Um, and it's fairly clear to me that lots of people outside the university are having extraordinarily interesting and practical conversations about how a different sort of future might be imagined. So the university is not the only place where this stuff can happen. It would be a bit of a shame if none of this stuff happened within the university. You know, it, I'd, And I'd like the idea of the university being able to be some kind of harbour uh, for some of these ideas, a place for some of these ideas to be discussed and disseminated. Um, I guess, the again, the counterfactual would be, you know, bulldoze the university, yeah, get rid of it altogether, because it's now a place that's so, again, ineluctably corrupt, da-da-da-da. That seems like throwing lots and lots of babies out with the bathwater. Mm. There's lots of different histories of the university as a social institution that we could write, you know, going back to medieval times, some of the earliest European universities like Paris and Bologna and so on. And they, most of those histories would suggest that universities have meant slightly different things at different times. Now, I think in a, in a way I'm harking back to a kind of 1960s version of the university. The university has a particular kind of lighthouse that... Uh, was concerned with radical developments in social theory, in 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 different conceptions of how we might live together, and you know ideas about say feminist politics or gay politics or um, ideas about racism or whatever it might be. Now some of those ideas I think have now influenced the mainstream of politics outside the university. I don't see any particular reason why we couldn't imagine the university still as being a place where. Yeah, an experimental attitude towards the future is debated and is encouraged in our students and consequently couldn't go on to influence the society of which we're a part. Hmm. So as a professor within a business school, and you've you know, obviously been sort of benefited greatly from being within a business school over the last, I want to say 20 years, but correct me if I'm wrong, Martin. Um, more than 20, more than, thank more, you. More than 20 <laughs> years. Um, do you think you would have been writing this book 20 years ago or so when you're sort of first starting your 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 career well I started as a sociologist and my 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 background was in anthropology and cultural studies so it wasn't until um, I moved to a business school about 20 years ago or so that I think I started to understand something about the the peculiarities of business schools. When I moved to a business school, I think the first business school I worked in was in 
2005. Um, and at that point, we were starting to see business education expand, but it, it wasn't as nearly as dominant as it is now within mm. most universities. So, you know, over the last two decades, what I've seen is the huge growth of these kinds of assumptions. Um, and in a way, you could say that part of this book comes out of a kind of sociological impatience with the kind of economic reductionism that I see in lots of business schools. You know, a refusal to admit that business is politics by other means and so on. I don't think, in answer, direct answer to the question, I don't think I needed to write this book 20 years ago. I think, in a sense, the book is a kind of a catalogue of my complaints over mm. the last two decades, um, which have now reached a kind of pitch, I suppose, in terms of my perception of universities in the UK as being so strategically reliant on their business school cash machines that effectively, you know, ideas about growth and building new buildings and um, uh, cross-subsidising other subjects and so on mean that universities are addicted to the money they get from business schools. Um, and it's difficult for them to imagine giving up on that kind of income. That puts university decision-makers in a really difficult position, I think, and it's not a position that I at all envy. Um, my... Uh, my usual line, if I'm talking to, if I'm ever given the chance to talk to one of these people, is treat us like the sociology department. Because effectively the difference between the way that the business school is treated and any other social science department is in terms of cash contribution. You know, the expectations about cash contribution from business schools are often enormous. And uh, in many of my previous institutions, this has been the basis of extraordinary... Um, extraordinarily difficult institutional politics around what gets taught to who. Um, essentially because the idea is that if anything critical is being taught, you'll put off the customers. Yeah, So, you know, you've got to teach them that uh, business is great and that we'll put, you know, we'll, we'll put an extra zero on your salary because otherwise the customers won't come to us. Mm. And that's the death of critical thinking, of course, isn't it? Because effectively all you're doing then is just encouraging your students to repeat the usual sort of nonsense that they find in the pro-business textbooks rather than actually thinking seriously about the kind of social problems that face us. Mm. Okay, that's a nice segue to my, to my final question about the sort of the practicalities. So let's just say you become vice-chancellor of you know, a university in the UK that has a large business school. Excellent. Um, I hope I get a big salary. Yeah, you get, and you get the salary that goes associated with it. Um, <laughs> what, 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 do you, what do you first do? You know, what do you do to try and realise this, 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 um, you know, this, this laboratory of the future that you propose in the book? Mm, yeah, that's a really interesting question. I mean, one of the, one of the uh, uh, to me, quite interesting issues here is dissolving the boundaries between the business school and other social science departments. So we can say, for example, that in a halfway decent social science university, you'll have a bunch of interesting people who are doing politics and geography and sociology and cultural studies and whatever else. And many of those, many of those students and many of those, uh, many of those staff will be doing various things on economic life, often from very different perspectives. So one of the first things I'd do, I think, is to make sure that we don't get a shiny new building for the business mm. school and to ensure that the business school is in continual dialogue with other social science departments, both in terms of research projects, but also in terms of sharing students and sharing ideas and sharing course development and so on. 
the the most dangerous thing I've seen in UK universities is the kind of sequestering of the business school, the way in which they get a new shiny building with a big glass atrium, going back to the start of this conversation, and effectively turn their back on the rest of the university. The rest of the university then treats them with a great deal of scepticism. Um, Again, I, you know, I don't want to give particular examples, but at a previous institution, I remember how difficult it was to go and talk to anybody from other social science departments because I was based in the business school of that institution. And they would just assume that I, I effectively was you know, some kind of charlatan in a suit who was just turning up to flog some more dodgy gear. Yeah? And so serious conversations about you know, sociology, politics, whatever, were, were very, very difficult. So I think the first thing I'd do is to make sure we don't get a separate business school hmm. building. The second thing I would do is to, to, to effectively treat your school of business and management as being the same in terms of cash contribution terms. Because that's, that's the slippery slope. As, as soon as the, what's euphemistically referred to as contribution, but it's effectively operating profit from the business school starts to become more important than any other strategic consideration, then you get pushed towards lecture theatres full of uh, non-EU students who can pay lots of money in order to be taught a course about finance, because that's the most profitable thing that you can do effectively. Um, and once that's starting to happen, then... Um, it doesn't matter whether it's a school of management or business or anything else. Effectively, the um, the die's been cast, and the university is going to be stuck with its uh, its its business school heroin. It's going to need it's going to need its shot every year of the money as it comes in. So you know, follow the cash. Make sure that you treat the business school in the same kind of way as any other social science. Great. And I hope loads of vice chancellors are hopefully listening to this. Uh, right I'm now. sure this podcast is essential listening for any VC. <laughs> Martin, thanks very much. It was a pleasure.